take you down. It may seem odd to come across an essay on the Sopranos in the prestigious journal Science, but Dr. Bernard Posadenti Jr., who is a biologist at Skidmore College, writes about the Sopranos, that widely viewed HBO television series portraying contemporary mafia life in New Jersey, suggesting that future critics of popular culture who look back on the show may especially appreciate its relatively sophisticated treatment of genetic themes. By one count, the 86 episodes aired since 1999 included 20 explicit dialogues about genetics. The most in-depth discussions about heredity occur between the lead character, Tony Soprano, and his psychiatrist, concerning the genetic basis of panic attacks in Tony's family when he discovers that his father suffered from them and that his son does too. Tony says about his father, he has that putrid, rotten soprano gene. The Sopranos, therefore, may have raised questions about the relative roles of heredity and environment in human behavior that can be examined through the attention paid in this series to family themes and discussion of familial traits that include depression, panic attacks, and attention deficit disorder, as well as discussions about suicide, criminality, sexual preference, substance abuse, and more. That from Bernard Posidente, Jr. of the Biology Department at Skidmore. Like father, like son in the Soprano family, when it comes to psychosocial issues, perhaps, and often in the Mafia, the family business is passed on from father to son as well. But we're about to learn of a real-life instance of a person with no genetic ties to anyone in a crime family who deliberately chooses that way of life under the wing of a man who becomes a surrogate father of sorts. The story is told in a book titled, appropriately, The Life We Chose, by award-winning investigative journalist Matt Birkbeck, whose previous books include Deconstructing Sammy, about Sammy Davis Jr., The Quiet Dawn, about Russell Buffalino of Kingston, Pennsylvania, A Deadly Secret, and A Beautiful Child, and its sequel, Finding Sharon, which were adapted by Netflix in 2022 for the hit film Girl in the Picture, for which Birkbeck served as executive producer. He's also written feature articles for the New York Times, Philadelphia Inquirer, Rolling Stone, and more. And he worked at the Morning Call newspaper in Allentown and earlier at the Pocono Record. The Life We Chose has as its subtitle William Big Billy D'Elia and the Last Secrets of America's Most Powerful Mafia Family. And it was just issued by William Morrow, HarperCollins, on July 11th. Julie Sidoni, WVIA's news director, had a chance to speak by phone with Matt Birkbeck about a book that he hadn't set out to write. I uh, received uh, an email out of the blue. It was August of 2020. We're in the midst of COVID, and I was just sitting sitting around on a Sunday afternoon, and this email, uh, I saw it on my phone asking if I'd be interested in speaking with Billy D'Elia. And I knew who Billy was. I had covered the Buffalino family in the early 2000s, and Billy specifically when he was arrested in 2006. I knew that he had never spoken to anyone before, and I knew that there were a lot of questions hanging out there, given his long relationship with Russell Buffalino. Uh, So I immediately said yes, and we met a couple of weeks later, and it took us a few months to get going. But once we did, we just kept talking for, you know, for a year, year and a half. 
But I also knew that since he had never spoken before, law enforcement had always wanted to talk to him about a number of different events that involved uh, Russell Buffalino, specifically what happened with Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, so I knew that it was very sensitive information that was coming from Billy and that we had to keep it quiet. And uh, I really didn't want anyone knowing what we were working on uh, until the project was, was finished. Did you have any hesitation about it, or was he someone you had tried to interview many times in the past, and so there's no hesitation, i got to get this guy? No, I, I tried to reach out to him when he was arrested in around 2006 and in 2007 because I was covering when Pennsylvania introduced gaming. Uh, former Governor Ed Rendell introduced gaming to the state. I had covered that. And I had written a number of investigative pieces when I was a newspaper reporter and uh, exposing just how corrupt the process was. And then uh, Billy got arrested, and then another local guy in northeastern Pennsylvania, Lewis de Naples, had gotten arrested. And that's when I, uh, I had reached out to Billy again in 2008. But after that, no, nothing. And it wasn't, you know, it was 12 years later when he reached out to me. What about the law enforcement side of this? Did you ever at some point think, do I, ha- do I have to report this? Do I have to let them know what's going on here? I mean, why after all this time would he say, you know what, I'm just go- going to let it all out and whatever happens, happens? So there were a couple of things here at play. One, Bill saw the movie The Irishman that came out in 2019, and he was uh, upset by a couple of things. One, the portrayal of Russell Buffalino. While the performance, Joe Pesci had played him, and the performance was good, it was how they had set Russell up to be kind of an underling, where in, in reality, Russell was amongst the most powerful and influential organized crime figures of the 20th century. And so Bill wanted to set the record straight on the film, as well as on Frank Sharon's claim that he had killed Jimmy Hoffa, because Billy knew Frank Sharon very well. And then uh, there was also this issue about Billy wanting to kind of settle the uh, issues he had with Louis de Naples. You know, he blames him for his arrest in 2006, because they had known each other for many, many years. And when De Naples was applying for a gaming license for his Mount Airy Casino, he was trying to basically extricate himself from having known Bill. And Bill believes that all led to his his arrest. I remember that case very well, yeah. It actually was one of the questions I was going to ask you was, if The Irishman had never been made, would this book exist? Uh, That's a good question. I guess that's a question for Bill. Uh, Those were the two motivations. You know, in all the, we, we talked and we talked at length and, you know, we conducted many, many hours of interviews, and initially, like I said, it was difficult for Bill to actually divulge any information. It was something he had just never done before. He had lived by that code, which was taught to him by Buffalino. Uh, but the more he, he, I guess it got to a point where he trusted me, and once that happened, we were able to just, you know, everything just flowed. Uh, as far as whether or not he would have spoken, that's that's a good question. I'm really... I'm really not sure. I don't think I have an answer to that. How did you find him? I mean, you said initially it was very, uh, and I understand how he would have to spend some time with you to really trust you. What what were those initial meetings and conversations like? Oh, they were <laughs> they were brutal. It was, you know, I met him at a restaurant. All I knew about Bill DeLeo was that he had been the former head of the Buffalino crime family. He was very, very well respected within that world. He'd gone to prison, spent four years in prison, and... He was a fearsome guy, and I met him at a restaurant up in Wilkes-Barre a couple of weeks after they had reached out to me and an associate reached out to me, and we talked, 
and nothing that happened that day changed my mind. I still thought he was a fearsome guy. So when we started, we did all the interviews in Russell Buffalino's old home in Kingston. Uh, it's a ranch-style home. It's nondescript. It's not what you'd think a great mob boss would have lived in. Uh, the house is owned now by Billy's son, Russell. So we did every interview there. And our first few weeks there when I walked in, because I still wasn't sure why. I really wasn't sure of the motivation why he wanted to do this. I thought maybe he had a bone to pick with me over my reporting way back when, or even from the 2013 book I did, The Quiet Don. And I'd be sitting there and I had my back to the stairs, to this room that went downstairs where Russell used to conduct his meetings. The house is like a museum. It's never been changed in the 50 years since Russell had been hosting meetings there years ago. But, you know, I would always turn around. <laughs> there was just something in the back of my head where I just had to go, you know, take a peek. You know, I let my wife know that I was there when I got there, you know, things like that. But, you know, as time went on, you know, and we got to know each other, things, things were fine. So what do you think his motivation was just to set the record straight? Or I think he's coming to, I don't want to say the end of his life, certainly. But, you know, as you age, maybe you start to think of things differently. Did he ever share with you why now was the time to say it? Yeah, I mean, it was it was about wanting to set the record straight on Russell. The Buffalino family was so powerful, uh, given Russell and who he was back in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, and far more powerful than anyone ever knew. I, mean, I wrote about it in 2013 in The Quiet Don, but in terms of when, you know, and if you go online and you want to look up organized crime, you're going to see names that come out of New York, like John Gotti or Carlo Gambino, or from New Orleans or Florida. Russell Buffalino's name is not the first name that comes up. But as I asked, I said to Bill, I said, was Russell ever on the commission, the five-member commission, mafia commission that runs organized crime? And he said, no. He said Russell was above the commission, which was a testament to the power and breadth um, and influence that he had. So I think Bill, yeah, he's in his mid-70s now, and he... I mean, this is really, this wasn't just a book. This was a piece of history, because these are all firsthand accounts from Billy, going back to the mid-1960s, and then following for 50 years. So this is, this is a historic work in terms of having someone, having a first-person account of what was going on with so many different events, whether the making of the Godfather movie, the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa, what happened in Cuba with Russell Bufflino in the 50s and 60s, what happened with him in... Bobby Kennedy. Um, there are just so many points and parts here. I know you are a journalist. How did you go about fact-checking this? Or was this more in your head, you know what, this is just this guy's story and I'm going to tell it? No, there had to be, you had to apply journalistic standards to it. You had a, I had a researcher work with me. And so the one thing that I felt really comfortable and doing this book was the length of time that Bill and I had spoken with each other. If we had just spoken for a couple of weeks, I would have doubted or had questions about a lot of what he had to say. But we spent so much time together, almost two years, and he never really changed his stories. Um, things that he told me that we could fact check, like places that he was at and people he was with, everything checked out. So I felt at the end of the day, I felt very, very comfortable. I also went out and we called people. We spoke with Barry Shapiro in Philadelphia, who was involved with the, uh, the so-called Trump, Donald Trump coin flip in Atlantic City in the 1980s, which is a pretty interesting story. 
And then we also spoke with uh, Barbara Crancer, who is the daughter of Jimmy Hoffa. Billy, had, Billy actually has some documented evidence, too, that he had uh, passed along to me relating to Frank Sheeran and his claims that he had killed Hoffa. And so we had gone, we had copies of letters, we had letters from Barbara Crancer to Frank Sheeran. Uh, so we had, we had some documentation, and we did speak to people. And there wasn't one instance where Billy said something to me and it wasn't true or accurate. So I felt really, I felt really comfortable with it at the end of the day. What kind of pushback did you get? Uh, maybe you didn't even share that you were writing it with too many people, but you know, did you get any pushback in the writing of it? No, uh, we kept it. We kept it quiet, even when it was announced. It was announced in the trades maybe a year ago, but that was it. There was nothing else. No one caught wind of it, and you know, there were only four of us that knew about it: myself, Bill, his son Russell, and an acquaintance of theirs, Dave. And we just we kept it secret and quiet, uh, knowing how sensitive a lot of the information was and the number of people that were involved and we just didn't want to we didn't want word to get out so it it was to the point where the book was announced it became known earlier this year but people still didn't know what was what was in the book and they're just finding out now so any potential pushback uh haven't felt any yet I don't think people really understand what has gone on so close to their backyard. What What would you say to people who are from around here? Why should they pick up this book? Uh, it's a piece of history. Um, they'll find a lot that's so familiar, and I think they'll be surprised at what they don't know about what went on in their own backyard. I mean, think about this. You've got, with Russell, you've got uh, arguably the most important and influential organized crime figure of the 20th century living right there in your backyard. You have someone there that did business with uh, the Cuban dictator, Fulgencia Batista, who went toe-to-toe with Bobby Kennedy during the racketeerings, who was best friends with Jimmy Hoffa uh, and had himself huge influence within the Teamsters Union, which is what really gave Russell his power. And that went back from the 1940s. Uh, and you know Russell had sway over the Teamster pension funds and where that money went to. Uh, Russell knew politicians. Russell knew entertainment figures. There's a really good scene in the book with Frank Sinatra, where mm-hmm. Billy meets Sinatra, and Sinatra's paying deference to Russell. So, you know, to, to, to think, I, and I spent three years in that neighborhood, and to think that the most powerful gangster in the country that lived there uh, for so many years, you know, to me is remarkable. It's kind of a a silly question, but nevertheless, it's one that occurred to me as I was reading the book was the role of the women in their lives, the the wives, uh, like especially when I was reading about Carrie, for instance. Um, what what role do you think the the women and children, the people in their lives, what role do you think they played in allowing them to be so successful in what they were doing? So the women, I grew up in Brooklyn, and where I grew up was a middle class neighborhood. It was mostly people that worked for the city, whether you were a police officer, fireman, sanitation worker. And we also had the local mafia guy on the block, too. And so I grew up with it myself. And it, we knew it, that the, the man was a member of the mafia, but we also knew their families. And so the families had nothing to do with it. And they never really took their work home with them. I mean, how can you? And this was the same case you know, in the book, especially with Billy. Uh, his wife, Ellen, who's a sweetheart, she loved Russell Buffalino, but she saw him. It's, it's funny because she sees him for what she believes is the goodness in him, because Russell 
in her in her eyes and in other people's eyes was a good person. Uh, she didn't see him. I mean, she read about it and she knew that other world existed, but she tended to look. And people do this all the time. They tend to look at the good in people, and so she kind of dismissed the other part of that life as it related to Russell, as well as it related to her own husband. So it's more about. You know, as a wife, I'm going to raise my family the best I can, and which she did. They have three children; they're all professionals, and you know, everything else was just on the side. Um, take that drone a little higher up. Why do you think stories about mafia in general resonate so much, not just here locally but nationally? I mean, why are we still so interested in this? It's a it's a world that people do not ever get to see. You know, I I as a reporter, I always and I've said this a lot recently. I always looked at the world being black and white with a little gray. And after talking to Billy, I realized that there's a lot of gray and it's populated by people like Billy D'Elia. You know, even though he was in organized crime and headed a major family, it wasn't about violence. In fact, I think we spoke about violence maybe rarely. It really was, it was more about the business of the mob, the day-to-day. And, you know, Billy became the mob's negotiator. I mean, he was going cross-country just settling issues, and not just for organized crime, for businesses, entertainment, sports, politics. And so when you get a a firsthand account of all of that from someone like Billy D'Elia, who's telling you stories about Muhammad Ali going to visit Teddy Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, in the early 80s in Washington to beg for a pardon for Russell, who's about to go to prison, and when Kennedy finds out it is for Russell, he throws Muhammad Ali out of his office. I mean, that's a story you're never going to hear anywhere else or with the many, many people that Billy met, including Donald Trump. There are several stories involving Trump, one of which leads to Billy managing Michael Jackson. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's entree into something that people just would never, ever have a window into. Did you learn something that shocked you? Anything that, that you walked away with or drove home that night and went, whew? Not, not where I came back where I was, I was rattled or anything. It was just that the stories... Once Billy started going, you know, you're talking about trying to get someone to remember things that go back 40, 50 years, 30 years, and that's not easy. I mean, even towards the end of our interviews, we would, let's say we'd wrap up an interview after a couple of hours, and then Billy would remember something, and i go, really? And we'd start talking. We'd be there for another half an hour. You know, trying to, that was the hardest part for me, uh, was trying to get him to you know, go back in time, because uh, he knows so much. I think just learning about, I, I always knew that, uh, you know, what goes on in the world in terms of how things are done, uh, but never at this level. You know, when you hear names like uh, Jimmy Hoffa and Marlon Brando, and then, of course, Donald Trump, and Michael Jackson, and people like that, I mean, you're, you're riveted just listening to these stories. I would love if you could tell me if there's something that I didn't ask you that you want to make sure we know, that I know, that, you know, the area knows a message, if there's a message you want people to hear. Uh, that this, this, is, this is not just a mob story. This is, this is a pretty intimate story about two men, a father and son story, with a backdrop of organized crime. But it's, um, it's really about two men and how they become devoted to each other. Uh, over a course of time and remain devoted to each other up until the very end. And I think that's very unique when it comes to stories like this. I also wonder if his own father hadn't been so cruel if the relationship would have developed the way it did. It obviously had an effect on, on Bill. You know, he had a decision to make when he 
joined Russell. And he wasn't, Bill wasn't born into this like many, many other men are. They're born into a mob family. Bill wasn't. He was a student and he was in the Army Reserves, but he made a conscious decision to go with Russell because Russell paid so much attention to him and they really hit it off. And then, you know, of course, Russell opened this incredible world to him. But had Bill's father played a greater role in his development as opposed to them having this difficult relationship, perhaps that wouldn't have happened between Bill and Russell. Yeah, I mean, that's one of those things I guess we'll never know. But I think you're right about it being just a part of our area's history that um, that no one no one would know otherwise. Yeah, no, I think it's it's not just the local area. I think it's na- you know nationally in terms of the historical value to the different people at Russell, particularly with Russell and people that he had met and he had things that he had been involved in and and how you know how it changed the course of history for a number of different people and and businesses and whatnot. So I think that's where the importance of the book comes in. Matt Birkbeck, award-winning investigative journalist and best-selling author, speaking with WVIA's news director, Julie Sedoni, about his new book, The Life We Chose. The subtitle, William Big Billy D'Elia and the Last Secrets of America's Most Powerful Mafia Family, just issued by William Morrow HarperCollins on July 11th. Birkbeck is known for his newspaper work in our region at the Morning Call and the Pocono Record. He's written feature articles for the New York Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Rolling Stone, and many other places. He has books including Deconstructing Sammy, about Sammy Davis Jr., The Quiet Dawn, about Russell Buffalino, and he has a celebrated pair The first work is titled A Beautiful Child, and it has a sequel, Finding Sharon. And those books were adapted by Netflix in 2022 for hit film Girl in the Picture. Birkbeck served as executive producer. For more information, mattbirkbeck.com, B-I-R-K-B-E-C-K.com. The book is The Life We Chose, just published by William Morrow, HarperCollins, on July 11th. Thanks, Julie Sedoni. 